Palestine? Yeah, I know. That's why I said it twice, is Palestine. Yeah. Now, they did, at that time, I don't think they had really, maybe it was by then, called uh, uh, Philistina by the Romans, um, which eventually is what we call Palestine today. But I just can't stand when people call the land Palestine. You know, it was Canaan in the Bible. You can call it Israel because the Israelites were there. Palestine is something that was forced on the land because the Jews were uh, you know, anyway, I just, I, I don't like that term. Isn't it odd that Arabic alphabet not have... No P in the no Arabic alphabet. So, so this right. is our land. Let's name it something, <laughs> something that starts with that a we letter can't that pronounce. we don't even know. It's That's like, right. Um, but i got to thank my friend for giving me this book. Adrian, it is just wonderful. Who named it Palestine. Who? In 135 A.D. 135 A.D. So at the time, it wasn't Palestine anyway. That's right. There you go. So, and that's why I was trying to think that through, and I couldn't remember the date, but... Good, 135 A.D. It was renamed, so uh, uh, it's a it's a false name for a place, and uh, I just I have very little patience for Palestine. He was a, uh, well, he was one of the Caesars, and he did lots of building up in uh, Britain. Oh, so forth too. Hadrian. Yes. Yeah, that's right. He, Hadrian's he wall. He came down for Copia, the false prophet, huh. around 132. And he uh, conquered him and oh, killed yeah. a couple of million Jews. And then, as I said, they were really scattered after that. That's them. right. The Bar Kokhba Rebellion. Right. That's, I remember that. Yeah? yeah. Good. I've just forgotten all of that, so it's good to have it reminded. But uh, yeah. let's see here. We'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll get started into Romans. Lord God, we thank you so much for the lessons of history and uh, the fact that you are sovereign over history. And when one bad thing seems to appear, something good comes out of it. And we can apply that to our own lives when we're struggling with all kinds of troubles and difficulties, and whether it's chemotherapy or whether it's a seeming divorce that's pending in our life, and uh, somehow you work it where it doesn't happen, and uh, we uh, end up reconciling with our spouse, or we get through the chemotherapy and we find out that there was a good purpose because a nurse came to the Lord, or whatever it is, we just need to keep looking for your hand in it. And uh, try to endure through the troubles, because we know that Christ endured the greatest of troubles for our sake. And we thank you for that. We thank you for the word that tells of him. We thank you for the wonderful doctrines of the book of Romans, which uh, just build us up and uh, help us in our walk with you. And uh, we would ask that you would help us to just handle this word properly, to treat it carefully, and to respect it always. Uh, May that begin in this class today, and may we apply the things we learn, if they're proper, to our daily walk. And we thank you for the chance to meet here, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have Romans 9, verse 17. So if you want to get into that, we'll get started right away. But the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you, and that name might be plain the earth. There you go. Raised him up for his, so that shows the sovereignty of God, choosing a certain Pharaoh at a certain time that his name might be proclaimed. And you got to wonder, how could it be proclaimed in all the earth when it's in kind of a backwater part of Africa and the Middle East? Exactly. It's recorded right here. And it's been proclaimed throughout the entire earth because of the pages of the Bible. So it's not an error. Hello, how are you? You doing okay today? Listen, I just turned on the air because and so if if it gets too cold or too hot you gotta let me know it's one of those days where you walk in and the temperature outside is the same as inside 
If I don't turn it on, it's going to be stuffy. If I do turn on the heat, then it's going to be hot. And if I turn on the air, I don't know what's going to happen. So I apologize. <laughs> I didn't know what to do when I came in here. So I hope everybody will be comfortable. Um, but I got it set at 70. It went up to 71 before I turned it on. So it should at least keep it breathing, I would think. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, proclaimed in all the earth. Very good observation. You picked up right on that. It is in the pages of the Bible. It is something that uh, we have a sure word, and uh, Paul wasn't making anything up. It is declared throughout the earth. But once again, verse 917, Paul turns directly to Scripture. He goes to Exodus 9, verse 16, which I'll read just because it's what he's referring to. Exodus 9, verse 16 says, uh, and you follow the, I may have mentioned this last week, and I can't remember, sometimes I think things afterwards, and I insert them into my head, but um, uh, if you follow the uh, talking of the Lord to Pharaoh, I'll read this verse first, but indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may de be declared in all the earth. So he's quoting directly out of Exodus, but if you follow the way that the Lord speaks to Pharaoh, it is obvious what he's doing is that Pharaoh has free will. It isn't that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart to the point where Pharaoh was zapped and he says, oh, I'm going to do something, you know, against the people of Israel. I'm not going to let the people of Israel go. I'm not going to because the Lord injects him with hardness. It doesn't work that way. The Lord did something and Pharaoh responded saying, well, I, I'm going to challenge you as a God because I got five billion gods around me and you're just another God. I'm going to challenge you. And so the Lord does something small and then he does something a little bigger and he keeps building up. And that is how Pharaoh's heart is becoming hardened. And that is how the Lord worked that out. He used Pharaoh's free will. And you need to go back and read the words, the specific words that are chosen concerning Pharaoh's heart to understand this. Because in the English, there's different words that are showing you different things going on with the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And so this is the Lord using man's free will and yet effecting his purposes through that free will. And he did raise him up. He knew the type of man that would be on the throne. He knew how he would respond to first saying, well, I'm going to, you know, we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this, and then we're going to do this. And eventually you get to the ninth plague, and he says, well, I'm still not going to let you go. And he has to come to the tenth plague before he lets him go. And then what does he do after he lets him go? He changes his mind anyway. Free will is seen all the way through the entire Exodus account, including him stepping into the Red Sea and being swallowed up. Now, it doesn't say that Pharaoh was, but we can infer it. But his army certainly was, and it is more than likely that Pharaoh followed in with his army and was consumed as well. It doesn't explicitly say that. But anyway, all the way through the account, the free will of man is on display. But we'll go on. Um, Exodus 9.16 is what he cited to justify the statements that he is making. The word for is looking back on the previous thought of God showing mercy on whom he will show mercy apart from our will or work. God decides who he's going to do that. And so he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh. He goes on to the Exodus account, one of the most noted in scripture, even little children usually know the Exodus account, all right? And one which shows the power of God and the selection of Israel as his people. They are called the least of all peoples in Deuteronomy 7, verse 7, indicating their size and strength. And yet, they were saved from the massive powerhouse of all of the nations in the Middle East at that time, the land of Egypt and the power of Pharaoh. And so to demonstrate his power, the Lord's power, 
in effecting his purposes, he selected this small group of people on whom to lavish his care and attention, his affection on them. By doing so, he would be glorified. And that's, you just follow it through and using the small, inconsequential body of people, the Lord is glorified through them. Does anybody see that in the world today? Because I do. He brought back a, a, a impossible chances of this group of people scattered to every nation on the earth. You got four of them in a China and synagogue. Yeah, and for centuries, they maintained their language. They maintained their culture. They maintained all of these things. They don't even speak the same language when they get back in the land of Israel. And yet somehow they coalesce into a body of people, still 1% of 1% of all of the people on the earth. And he is demonstrating his holiness in them even to this day. It is absolutely marvelous what the Lord does. In, it's like the story of Gideon. You think about the story of Gideon. Then he says, well, I need you to go down and, and take care of the Midianites. And he gets his people together and you got too many. And then he pairs them down. And then he's, you got too many and he pairs them down. He pairs them down to 300 people, right? He says, otherwise, you're going to take credit for this. But with this number, you can't take credit for it. And then they go and they defeat 135 thousand Midianites. It says 120,000 of them fell, right? Now that was afterward they started chasing them and they got other Israelites chasing them as well and slaughtering them, but it started with 300 men. The Lord was glorified through that, but when I was in Israel, our guide Zvi, who is now dead, a very wonderful guy, said, he did the, the calculation and he said that in he believed that the 1973 war was a result of disobedience in the 1967 war is because they were established as a nation in 1948 they beat the world of muslims against all odds literally there's a story and i don't i i've tried to find proof of it but i heard it i think it was from zola levitt that there uh in 1948 they didn't have their own weapons making they couldn't you know put together uh, uh you know things to uh, bullets for rifles and stuff but it happened to be that there was a lipstick manufacturing place in israel at the time and the cartridges for the lipstick were the same size as needed for the cartridges that go into a gun and so they adapted it and they used the same workings and they were able to uh make bullets in order to fire the guns and that helped them win now, uh, Did they uh, come in different shades? They came in different shades, yes. They came in rustic gray, and they came in copper, and, you know. So, anyway, yes, it was a, a great way of destroying the enemy. Um, but they, um, uh, they won against all odds. 1967, the same thing happened. They initiated the battle, but it was because they had no choice. If they didn't, they would have been overrun. People like to hold that against the Jews. I'm sorry. They needed to make the choice. They did. They did it, and they defeated their enemies. And other enemies declared war on them when they knew they shouldn't have, like Jordan. And, and uh, you know, eventually the war was won by Israel. But what did Israel do? They took credit for it. We defeated our enemies. And Zvi, when he told us the story, he said, the ratio of people in Israel against all of the enemies that came against them in 1970 or 67 was the same as that of Gideon going against the Ishmaelites. He said, I, I did the numbers and they were the same ratio. And he says, we took the credit. We did not give God the glory. And he says, I believe that the Yom Kippur War was punishment for us for not acknowledging the Lord as having been the one to defend Which us. Which war was it that they gave the um, top of the mount to uh, 
Oh, that was the 67 war. They gave the Temple Mount back to the Muslims. He, uh, that was Moshe Dayan. Mm -hmm. And he took the keys and he gave them back to the Waqaf. And, uh, you know, that's the green door that leads up to the Temple Mount. And he said, this is going to appease our enemies. There was a complete lack of trust in the Lord in their actions. They did not give the Lord the credit, etc. So uh, the point is that we have this body of people that are completely without the Lord being there for them without help. They could not win these things, and yet they do again and again and again. Yes. Z-I-V. Z-V. Z-V-I. Not Z-I-V. Z-V-I. Z-V. Say Z and then V. Z-V. He's the one that wrote the little blurb all the time? No. Friends of Israel? No. No? I don't think so. No, he was a tour guy, and he was a very nice guy, but anyway, he finally got cancer, but it was a different guy. Not Z, but Z-V. Okay, this this thing here we just read. Yes, the scripture says. Yes, I think that is just absolutely great. Absolutely. Uh, the words that I speak, John six sixty three, <laughs> the the flesh prophet is nothing. The words that I speak are spirit and life. You know, the word that he says, "I'm the word." In John one, all this. It all points. I, I never picked this out before, but I got it highlighted down. Absolutely. When Paul <laughs> cites something important, he always says, as the scripture says. Yes. He's pointing to the fact that everything is about Christ. Everything is leading to Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of those things. Oh, yeah. Everything. Just so. like with his comment before about this was going to be uh, throughout the entire world. Right. His audience, half of his audience, probably 90% of his audience, right. just had to take, take his word for it that it was scripture because they... You say so. It wasn't like us. We can just turn back the that's Exodus right. and read it. That's right. I mean, he just said, oh yeah, they they may or may not have had a copy of Scripture there at all. Right. That's right, and that's the same thing. When he is writing to these people, they may have had copies of it, but they have to trust that what Paul says is actually Scripture. And that's a really good point because you have how many people out there that claim divine revelation, or they'll say Scripture says in the Bible never says what they are saying. Mm. I've heard, I, I don't want to use him, I'm not going to give his name anymore because I don't like the guy, I don't like anything he does in the pulpit, but he's in Texas and he's very popular, and I'll leave it at that. He, uh, he um, will, you watch his sermons, and he speaks with authority, he speaks with uh, just almost a majestic voice, and he says things that people want to hear, how great America is, how great Israel is, and then he starts quoting scripture. And it never matches scripture. I'm telling you, Hedeko knows. I used to sit there and I'd say, well, that's not even in the Bible. He'd just say something and he'd make something up and it wouldn't even be close to what's in the scripture. And he'd say, go look, it's right there. And there is nowhere in scripture that that can be found. So, you know, but people trust what he said. They trust what an authority is saying. And Paul is saying, as scripture said, and they have to trust him on that. Because they probably, in Rome, they may have had a copy of it, but, you know, he's writing to Ephesus. They may or may not have had one. What they could do, being Gentiles, they could go over to the synagogue and check it, but are the Jews even going to tell them where that's at, right? Or do the Jews even know where that's at? I mean, you know, they got these scrolls, and they got to undo them, and they read them once a week, and then they expound on the what they read from the scrolls. It's not like us where we can do this. Oh, that's here, and then, oh, and then we got the little reference notes, and we can, it's very easy for us, or to go to a computer and to simply pull up a verse and say, one word, you know, I want to look up uh, majesty for a, a, a picture of the sunrise in the morning, and I want to have something that says majesty, I just type in the word majesty, and I find a verse, and I put it up there. It is so easy for us to do these things. That was not the case back then. People had to remember what they read, and 
you wouldn't have somebody saying, well, I need to check this. And they say, okay, well, we'll go get the squirrels and we'll bring them out and we'll sit down and go over it. No. You know what? Those were very precious. And they would say, we're going to read this and then we're going to put it away because they were handwritten documents. There may be one in an entire town. And as I said, my friend that uh, attends the synagogue down here, his son was to be bar mitzvahed. And they didn't have their own copy of the Torah scroll. And they went to all the synagogues around here and they asked, can we borrow your Torah scroll for the bar mitzvah? And 99.9% of them says, we ain't letting you borrow it. It's not going to happen. And somebody was gracious enough to give it to them. And so they could carry it around. And But even to this day, those are expensive documents. When Paul says something, he is being, you know, he is obviously quoting scripture. And how do we know that? Because we can refer to what he just said. But anybody else has to trust him. And that's why when you listen to a sermon and somebody says, well, it says this, you should probably be making a note and checking when you go home. Because I can assure you that, I, you know, I, I don't do that with all preachers. But after a while, he'd say something and it wasn't in there. And I finally just started documenting. And finally, I said to her one day, I'm never listening to this again. It is just all it is, is it's poisoning of the mind to hear this type of thing and to have that fed into you when it's incorrect. Right. People, friends down here at the synagogue, I'll loan them a copy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right here. Yeah. Just give them a copy right here. That's right. <laughs> Might have a yeah, they, that may not go well over with them, though, I'll tell you that. Charlie, how did the Bereans? Well, they had a copy in the synagogue, and so they would check against it, right? And so they obviously had a copy of the scriptures. And many, and, many Christian, early Christians were Jews. Oh, that's right. Most, so, Yeah, most of the early Christians were Jews. Paul went always first to the synagogue. Right. And so they could check, but it wasn't like I'm saying, it wasn't like us today where we can just go back and forth and back. They had, it was a meticulous process and they'd say, well, we got to pull out the scroll of Malachi and they'd roll it out and they'd be careful. And they would methodically go through these things. Paul would probably say, I want you to refer to Isaiah 53, 27 or whatever. I made that up and there isn't a 53, 27. Anyway, um, but I want you to refer to the book of Isaiah. It'll be in the 53rd chapter. And then they would carefully search out what he had said but it wouldn't be like we're doing right now no. by any way stretch of the imagination they would say how do we know that's true and he would say well i want you to check this this and this and then they would carefully go and do that but they always went to the synagogue first and then they'd get kicked out they you know the city would get into an uproar and then he'd say well i'm going over and i'm going to teach people over here anybody that wants to meet me over here great but yeah it wasn't uh it, it wasn't like it is today with bible studies too. yes it was mnemonics right that was what? Mnemonics. They, Mnemonics. They didn't, have, they didn't have vowels. Oh, that's right. It was a, a Hebrew is a consonantal language, and there were no dots and points the way they are today. Okay. Uh, in other words, when you see Hebrew, at least in the Bible, you'll see little dots all around it, and a dash or a T or something looks like a T under a letter, and that tells you how to pronounce the letter. Okay. They don't have that, and when you go in Israel and you drive around, a billboard won't have those dots and things. That's for learning, and eventually you just learn how to read the language. And so, but there are no vowels to speak of in, it's a consonantal language, everything is a consonant. And if you know, I don't know if you know Japanese, but they um, have different alphabets, okay? One of the alphabets is kanji, it's the Chinese characters. And you look at it, it looks like little pictographs, okay? Well, it's very hard to know what those pictographs are saying. And so what they will do is they will take another one of the languages. They have four written languages that they use. They will take the hiragana language and they'll write next to the kanji, the hiragana, which is a very simple alphabet. And so the children will learn this kanji 
in this context, because if you have a kanji here and a kanji here, it may say Nippon, but when you turn them around, what does it say? Nippon, come on. The two characters for Nippon, here and here, Nippon, right? You turn them around, and what does this now say? What? No, 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 no. It's not even close. Anyway, she's not getting what I'm saying. But you have the two characters that are kanji in Japanese, and this says Nippon, which means Japan. When you turn them around, those two characters now mean something completely different, and they're not pronounced the same. You get up here and write it, and then you'll know what I'm talking about. Anyway, and I know she does because she translated English into Japanese and Japanese into English for the U.S. government for years and years and years, right? And uh, she did it for the Japanese and U.S. government. So she's just not cluing into what I'm saying. But what they will do is they'll take that kanji and they'll put the little hiragana next to it. And once they learn the language and the structure of the language, they no longer use those. It's the same thing with Hebrew. The Masoretes, the people that came later, wanted to preserve their language. And so what they did is they said, we have this consonantal language, and these characters here, one, two, three, can be pronounced either this way or this way. And how do we make sure that we preserve this language? They put these little dots and points all around there to say that this is an O, this is an A, and so now they, it's preserved their language. Okay. When was that? Uh, it, the oldest copy of the Masoretic text is about 1034, I think, A.D. So it's much later, but they were people that preserved the language. And now, the thing about doing that, suppose you have two possible readings of these three characters, and it's very clearly, th this is pointing to Jesus, right? Well, how would you change that so you want to make that obscure? You just change the vowel pointing on there. All right, and so there are times where there are things in the Old Testament which are clearly referring to Jesus that are not reflected in the Masoretic text. And so I'll give you a perfect example of one is in the twenty-second uh, uh, Psalm. Hang on, just a second, and we'll get back in Romans in just a second. But I want I, I want to get this point out so you understand that it wasn't just as easy as is what we're doing now. Psalm twenty-two says. Uh, hang on one second here. You, I, I could quote it to you, but I want to read it to you so that you know the verse and you can highlight this for yourself. And there may be a footnote in your Bible as well about this, but Psalm 22 says, um, uh, and there's three or four, five, six instances in the uh, Old Testament like this, but it says um, in verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. Now this is a Psalm about the cross. Nobody would deny that. It, you read it and you know Jesus you know, it's a psalm about the cross. It says, dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet, right? We all know that's about Jesus. Well, guess what? The Masoretic text does not say they pierced my hands and my feet. Instead, let's see if they put a footnote in here. Um, hang on. Uh, following some Hebrew manuscripts. Always read the footnotes. Don't worry about commentaries. Always read the footnotes. Footnotes are where the information is. It says... The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, some Hebrew manuscripts, the Septuagint, the Syriac, the Vulgate, all say they pierced my hands and my feet. Guess what the Masoretic text says? Like a lion, my hands and my feet. It doesn't make any sense at all. It makes no sense. But they changed the, the, they emended, they didn't amend it, they didn't change the text, they emended the text in order to say something to clearly get away from the reference to Christ, okay? When you have all of these other references and you have one that is different than them, 
then you know that somebody has fudged it. And that's why it's very important what scholars do in order to determine the truth of what is being said. Because even in the Masoretic text, and guess which text the King James Version is based on? The Masoretic text. But even they were smart enough to say, this isn't right. So they went away from the very text that they used to do their translation in order to present Christ. Because it's obvious what is going on. So when somebody says that the Masoretic text, which the King James Version on, is God's inspired word, all you need to do is take them here and you say, well, that may be the case, but it was also fudged, right? And we have the same thing with Isaiah 53, where it says, His, he shall see the light of life. Guess what? That's not in the Masoretic text, but it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's in the Septuagint. Right? So they've obviously taken something out that refers to the resurrection because they didn't want. And now Jews don't even read Isaiah 53 in the synagogue anymore. Okay? This is why it's so important what we're looking at right here in the book of Romans, which you brought up, right? Is that, and scripture says, well, how do you know what scripture says unless you study scripture? And I'm not talking about just your translation of the Bible that says this, because God has preserved his word. When he gave us the Syriac and the, the Latin Vulgate, and the Latin Vulgate was translated out of original Hebrew texts. All right, that's what Jerome, knew. He, tra- he learned Hebrew and Greek, and he went back to the original Hebrew texts. And the Latin Vulgate, which precedes the Masoretic text by a thousand years, says, he pierced my hands and my feet. Well, we know that other Hebrew texts as well. So we have Hebrew texts that say it. We have the Dead Sea. Well, I don't want to say Dead Sea Scrolls because they didn't refer to that there. But uh, the Syriac, the Vulgate, the Septuagint, which is, predates Christ by 300 years. These documents all say the same thing. And one copy has obviously been emended to change the words. So they took these vowel points and dots in there to preserve their language. But if it didn't fit their theology, they could say, well, this obviously says this and not this, all right? We know that it's correct because God has preserved it in other source texts, okay? So, Scripture says we can know if we are willing to check. When you hear a sermon and somebody says, the Bible says, and they don't give you the the verse, it probably doesn't say that, Mm -hmm. okay? And when I cite something and I say, well, it's in the book of Isaiah, and I cite it, I usually say, I know that I'm misquoting that. And the reason why I do that is because I don't want people to think that's a direct quote. And they go and they say, well, that doesn't say what Charlie said. I'm giving you the substance of what it says. Mm-hmm. Unless I go to that verse and read it, you probably shouldn't trust me either. Okay, I'll say Isaiah 53 says this, but I'm probably misquoting that because I didn't turn to Isaiah 53 to read you that. But when somebody does not cite their references, it's a problem because people just assume that that teacher is telling the truth or that preacher from the pulpit. So scripture says, we've gone through that marvelous thank you for that diversion because we need to know these things and we need to be reminded of them always read the footnotes always footnotes are where your information is footnotes not commentaries you know people put these little commentaries down there and this is the you know the jack van mp prophecy study bible who cares right that's his opinion about those verses okay Commentaries are people's opinions, all right? We have the uh, Charles Ryrie study Bible, right? I read it every single day. I'll be done with it, and then I'll change to another Bible. But I don't want to read his commentary unless there's something I think. I wonder what Charles Ryrie had to say about that, but I'm not going to read it like it's a part of the Bible, all right? I'm going to read the Bible, and then I'm going to do my own studies, and I may or may not refer to his commentary. But, 
um, the footnotes are information. It used to be, if you read older commentaries, they will call, call them, anybody know what they would call them? Margin notes. Because what they would do is they would put the comments on the margins. All right. Now, because it's much easier to put them down here in smaller text, then they offset them and they're called footnotes. But the margin notes or the footnotes are where your information is, and that is where you are going to know that you are correct or incorrect in your theology. Okay, It's a very important thing to read your footnotes. Anytime you come to something that says, in this Bible, a footnote is, um, let's see, it's 9-3. Uh, um, where's 9-3? Uh, okay, it has an A. Mm -hmm. Some Bibles will have a little A next to it. Just learn what the, the uh, Bible that you're using is telling you. One might have an asterisk, and then the second footnote would be a double asterisk. Some of them might have a one, a two, a three. But whatever key your Bible gives you to show you this is referring to a footnote on Scripture, learn that for that Bible, and then always read those footnotes as you go through, because there you will find differences in text which are actually important for you to know. And then they will tell you, we chose this text, and here is the reason why. Okay? And normally that goes to the beginning of your Bible, in the preface. If the Bible doesn't have a preface explaining their translations, probably shouldn't be reading that Bible. There's a reason why people need to tell you what choices they have made. There are certain Bibles out there that claim that they are the inspired scriptures of God, new translations, and they don't tell you what source text they use. Well, guess what? They could have chosen this verse, and this verse, and this verse, pick and choose theology, and said, see, this is God's word without ever telling you where they got the information or why. That is not sound. That is not sound. If that preface in your Bible doesn't tell you why they chose to use the word Lord instead of the divine name Jehovah or Jehovah or Yahweh, whatever you want to say, okay, they will normally tell you that. If they don't tell you those things, that is a problem. So read your preface before you read your Bible, understand what they are going to do, and then read their footnotes, which will indicate why they have deviated from that or why they have chosen to stick with that particular text when there are differences. That is where you will learn proper theology. We'll go on. Um, let's see here. Um, Billy Graham always said, Bible says. The Bible says. And then he'd give the verse. That's right. He, the Bible says, and then he would talk about it and give you the verse, and that is what you do. The Bible says. I don't care what people think. When a pastor or somebody stands up and says, well, I think, who cares? It's irrelevant what you think. What matters is what this word says. Now, you can say, I interpret that to mean, but even that is, you know, the Bible says. Now you have to make sure that it's the proper context, because the Bible says a lot of things that otherwise would be contradictory, unless you know that Jesus is speaking to this group of people in this dispensation of time, and Paul is saying this to a particular group of people in this dispensation of time, and that's why the two don't match, is because he's not speaking about this issue or that. Hello, how are you? So, um, uh, very important things that people should apply to their Bible study. I, they're, they're just hugely important issues. Um, I got two letters today. I'm not going to read them to you, but I got two letters today that came in. Both of them said kind of the same thing. They're talking about how, how happy they are to be in the Word of God. One of them said that I've read the Bible through chronologically all the way through, and he says, I've listened to it three times in the past year. Another one of them says that we used to read all of these books, and they gave me the name of some of their favorite scholars, and they said, we almost can't read those anymore because we're so into the Bible now. 
Oh, my hair standing up just saying this. This is where God wants us to be is in this word. I am so happy when I got those letters. I was just like a little giddy schoolboy. And look at my hair. See, I'm not making it up. It's standing up. It's poking through my shirt. I love when people send letters like that and say how precious the word is to them. Because this is God's word. Darling, yes. why isn't the Maccabees? Because it's not scripture. It was never considered scripture by the Jews. It was included as, as it's called the Apocrypha. It is an intertestamental, that means from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's an intertestamental series of books that were never considered canon by the Jews. They were kept in a separate location from the, the, the scrolls. They were written in a different language, Greek, instead of in the, or maintained in Greek. They weren't on the special parchments, etc. They were never considered canon, and plus, they're not canon. They don't carry the authority of the Word of God. They weren't written by prophets of God. And they make claims within themselves, such as in uh, one of the apocryphal books, it says there's no prophet in the land at this time. Okay? Well, if you've got no prophet, you've got no word of God. In other words, the word of the Lord is not coming to the people. The book of Malachi ended the Old Testament. And it came with a warning right at the very end of it. And it told them, look forward, he is coming. And then for 430 years, which is, by the way, noted in the book of Daniel implicitly, okay, in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, it's implicitly recorded there. But all of a sudden you come to the New Testament and you get <coughs> prophetic vision once again with the speaking of angel Gabriel to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and then Mary, and then everything starts to happen again. But for 430 years, the word was silent. Okay, that is why they're not included in there. They were never considered so canon. That's just like a historical. It's a historical book. It's good for reference. That's why they used to put it into the Bible. But it was first considered canon or belonging in Scripture in the year 1546 when the Catholics, because they wanted to justify purgatory and they wanted to justify indulgences and things like that, they said this is now canon. Just like when did the Immaculate Conception show up in Catholic theology? about 150 years ago. It never, the Immaculate Conception, meaning that Mary was born sinless, has nothing to do with Jesus. It's the sinless state of Mary. That didn't even, that wasn't even a doctrine until it was solidified in Catholic uh, uh, writings about 150 years ago. Yes? I think, unless I'm mistaken, I think the 1611 King James had the apocryphal. Yes, it did. The 1611 King James did, and there's nothing wrong with that. People will say, oh, we'll see, the original King James Version had the apocryphal, so it's not the inspired word of God and blah, blah, blah. You're absolutely right. It was inserted in there. It was not considered canon. If you read the original preface to the King James Version, which I have over here, which is very long and very small letters and very hard to read, it, uh, it, it discusses that issue and it discusses a whole bunch of other issues which completely blow away the arguments of the King James only people anyway, right in their preface. So if you want a copy of that, I can send it to you. It, it, it's very bad theology, but let's go on. Deuteronomy 7 verse 7 indicates their size and of the people, and yet they were saved from the powerhouse of Egypt. And then I got into that, that tangent about Israel and how God, and then we got into all that other stuff. And so to demonstrate his power, the Lord's power in affecting his purposes, he selected this small group of people on whom to lavish his care and his affection. By doing so, he would be glorified. He's not going to be glorified through the United States blowing up another country with nuclear bombs right? It's not going to happen. We're a powerhouse. He's going to choose somebody that is in desperate situation uh, geographically 
by hemmed in by enemies, unable to go that direction because there's a sea on that side, unable to go that direction because there's desert over there, unable to go down there because they've got a sea down here and they've got enemies both places and they can't go north, right? He's going to demonstrate himself through something like that. He's not going to pick somebody that's over here on this side of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. When America is in obedience to the Lord and we're doing what we should be doing, God is glorified through that. We've fallen away from that hugely, right? And despite what our great president, and I call him great because I believe he is at this time in history, we have such a bad cancer in this nation that what he is doing doesn't take care of the moral issues, which are just growing, growing in this country. And so it's going to take real leadership when... I think it's probably going to happen. I'm not trying to prophesy or say anything dogmatically, but when the economy collapses, we need a good leader to lead us out and to say we have been on the wrong path. And that's what I think is probably going to happen. I could be wrong. But this economy can't keep going the way it's going. It can't. The stock market is overblown. Housing prices are back up to the same point where they were in 2006, just two years before the collapse. I read that yesterday. And the so, dollar just dropped. And the dollar is dropping. So we've got these these things, which may be leading us into a complete economic collapse. And it doesn't mean the rapture is going to happen. There's nothing that ties the collapse of America with the rapture of the church. We may be in real severe straits for years. And we may be just like they were back in the 20s. Soup lines, well, we have soup lines anyway. What are they called? Welfare. Welfare, right? It's just, it's hidden away. But those are those are soup lines today. Well, it's going to be a lot worse if the economy collapses. And people say, well, we're exempt from that. We're America. Maybe he's going to demonstrate his holiness through us, right? We don't know. So let's sure. be prepared and let's be wise about that, not tie America into Bible prophecy except as we are on the side of Israel. I, that's what I would go with right now. Nothing else. Um, he's demonstrating his power through this small group of people. He's going to be glorified through this small group of people to show that he is able to accomplish even the unimaginable. He raised up Pharaoh to be a part of this plan. As the account says, for this purpose, I have raised you up. The intent is by my sovereign choice and for my own reasons, you as a leader of this great and powerful nation, were placed, established, and carried through to this moment. The Lord ensured that this is how things would turn out. And when we look at, oh, there's a mistake in our life, and there's no mistakes. We perceive the mistake because we don't see God's good plan. We lost Paul a few weeks ago, and people are questioning in their minds, why did this happen? Why did, we, why did he go through all of that? Listen, we're going to find out someday exactly why. Probably one of the nurses at the Sarasota Memorial Hospital is going to say, I received Christ because of that. And then she went on to tell somebody else and somebody else. And the Lord understands things that we can't even comprehend. So let's not question the Lord's goodness when things happen that are bad. Let's look for his hand in those things and find out why they occurred, or at least try to remember them so that someday we will understand. So, um, he, uh, the Greek word Paul uses for raised up is exergia. It is a word, or yeah, exergia, zera, okay, pronounce that wrong. It is a word used only twice in the New Testament, and so the context must be considered from those two passages. The second instance is in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14, which says, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In both instances, it is showing God's active role in the direction of people. 
The word means to raise out completely, and it emphasizes its end impact on the person that God raises. Okay, there's an end impact on why he raised somebody up. He raised up Pharaoh for an end goal. He raised up Jesus Christ for an end goal. There's logic in what God does. It's not arbitrary. It's not willy-nilly. In other words, God has raised up Pharaoh, has sustained him through his life because he could have been bitten by a mosquito and died, right? He didn't. He survived all the way until the age where he took over the throne. He didn't get overthrown by some other lesser pharaoh and get his head cut off and that guy took over instead the lord knew all of these things he raised this person up for this point in history knowing that this person is going to have a heart that i can harden externally and his free will will harden it internally voluntarily and he will come against the lord in such a way that the Lord will be greatly magnified, so much so that 3,500 years later, the Jews still talk about this same event every single Passover. They talk about it. It has kept them as a people, okay? And it has also showed us much greater pictures of what Christ did in redeeming us. So everything that the Lord is doing is for a purpose, including raising up Pharaoh, every single part of his life, okay? Uh, God raised up Pharaoh, he sustained him through his life, and has directed the events of his life to mold him in the exact way, so that when his moment of destiny with the approaching exodus comes, he will respond in exactly the manner which will bring God the anticipated glory for what occurs. Exactly what the Lord wanted. That I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The whole purpose for what he is doing is for his glory. Everything comes back to the glory of God. And if we can't understand that, then we are missing the point of our lives, the purpose of our lives, and the purpose of what God wants our lives for. It's not so that we can go to heaven and have a happy time for eternity. That's a result of it, but that is not the reason why he's doing it. It's because God is... And God wants to fellowship with his creatures, and he desires those creatures to voluntarily recognize that he is God and that he is glorious. That is what he desires. Okay, he doesn't need it. God doesn't need anything, but he desires that intimate fellowship that we say, how great you are, how wonderful it is to experience 10,000 years, right, as the song says, of glory, and then it's just beginning. And we keep saying, I can't believe how marvelous this God is. 10,000 more years, and then 100,000 on top of that, and a million after that, and the glory keeps coming. And we keep saying, I can't believe how glorious this is. Whatever we think is really wonderful now, it's not going to compare. It is not, it is not, it, oh, it's going to be so wonderful. But that is the purpose of what God is doing. And you know what? It doesn't have to start when we go to heaven, it can start right now. It can start right now in our lives, and we can say, I want to give God the glory that He's due. I want to thank him for the food that I had today. I want to thank him for the beautiful wife of 33 years. I want to thank him for the wonderful president we have. Pray for our president in the meantime. All of these things we want to do because he's worthy of it. That is what his end goal is, is to receive the glory from the creatures that he created and wants to fellowship with. Okay, so. Rahab the harlot heard that. Right. That's what she said. We heard. We heard the story. He said, just in case they didn't hear it, he's citing Rahab the harlot and how that was what she said. We know that the Lord has done all these great things for Israel. Yeah. He received glory through her words, and the Lord recorded those, saying, see, this is somebody that understood 
This person understood and I'm going to save her and her family and guess what? My son is going to come through her. Imagine that. That's an amazing thing. But he understands his glory and he understands how to reward those people that are willing to acknowledge his glory. Wonderful stuff. Okay. Every particular of the Pharaoh as well as every particular of Egypt was determined by God for the moment. The amount of soldiers, for example, was preordained. A smaller force may have led him to choose a different path. Every detail was orchestrated to bring Pharaoh to make the decisions that he made. But he made them. The Lord didn't make that decision for him. He made the decisions. Go back if you want to make sure if I'm telling you correctly and watch the sermons and make your own evaluation. But the words that the Lord chooses for, I will harden his heart or Pharaoh has hardened his heart are very, very specific. The Lord is letting us know that we are culpable for the decisions that we right. make. And All right. Doesn't Exodus also prove that by the fact that when he decided to chase after them, there was no provocation from no, God to do No, absolutely that. So, not. No so provocation was, at all. Right. They had left. His son was buried, and he said, what have I done? I've I've thrown away all of the, the revenue that we can have from these people. So I'm going to go get it back. I'm going to go get it back. Voluntary choice, 100%. God in no way determined the evil choices that Pharaoh made, but the choices came as a result of his own makeup. It doesn't matter if God led to his makeup by saying, I'm going to give him this mother and this father at this point in time and blah, 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 and I've orchestrated his life he still had the choice to not do the things that he did or to follow a different path. Every person is responsible for the decisions they make. The more you give God the glory, the better it's going to be for you at the Bema Seat of Christ, I guarantee it. The more you adhere to his word, the better off you'll be there. The more that you read his word, the more that you cherish his word, the more that you think on his word, the more the Lord is going to reward you when you stand before him. This just obvious. It's obvious on the surface because God gave us his word, right? If we pursue this word, then it is obvious that he is going to reward it for it, reward us for it, because this is what tells us how to live our lives. This is what tells us what will bring rewards, what will bring losses. Well, if that's the case, and this is the only place we can know these things, then he's obviously going to reward you for pursuing this word. The more you do, the happier the Lord is, and the more he's going to bless you with it. As I said a million times, you could be a person in a pulpit with all of the knowledge in the world, the greatest oration skills, and get almost no rewards. And you can be a street sweeper, pondering God's word, cherishing God's word, loving God's word, and you're going to be rewarded far more than that guy. It doesn't matter what your position is. It matters what your heart is towards him. Okay? So, this is how such events work both for good and for evil, as was noted in the explanation of the twins, Jacob and Esau. And this is how the events work for us as well. We are a product of the things which make us the people who we are. I was born to Cope and Susan Garrett. I was born in Memorial Hospital. My mom took me down to Turtle Beach and dunked me in the water <laughs> days after I was born, right? That's a part of who I am. That's why I love that spot. I don't want to go to any other beaches on this planet. I love Turtle Beach, and that's the only place that I want to go. And I don't even go there because, I, I, what, half a mile from my house? I, I haven't been there once this year. Or last year, I went once. So, you know, twice. We did go a second time with, uh, anyway, uh, I met my mom down there with some people, and uh, we had a good time. But I, I just, I don't have time anymore. 
but that's where my heart is when I'm typing sermons. I'm down at Turtle Beach. <laughs> anyway, um, those are the things that make us who we are. We're a product of those things, all selected by God to mold us and to form us. And yet, we are granted the free will to choose the path we take. Just because God knows what those choices will be in no way changes the fact that we will make them. Okay? My, not her, I'm making an example here. My mom was a cocaine addict and I inherited a cocaine addiction when I was born. And so I've got a pre, whatever you call it, when you, uh, you know, predisposition, predisposition thank you, for cocaine. I, it, it, I'm addicted to it and if I get around it, then it's going to ruin my life. It doesn't matter that I have that. That's something that I have to work with. The Bible says, you know, to have sound mind and to uh, not do things like that, not to destroy your body. And if I do it, my predisposition towards that does not make it right for me to do it. You can argue all day long whether homosexuality is something that you have a predisposition for from birth or if it was because a pervert when he was when you were three years old did something to you whatever the reason is it is irrelevant it is completely irrelevant how somebody gets a predisposition for homosexuality what is relevant is that the word says don't do this thing and you have the choice to either do it or not free will just because you have a predisposition to something does not mean that it is okay for you to do that thing okay Pharaoh had a predisposition towards hardening his heart against the Lord. He had a predisposition towards enslaving people and causing them grief, even when their God said that he's not to do this any longer. It doesn't matter that he had a predisposition for it. He voluntarily chose to pursue that course of action. Okay, So when you have baggage in your life and you say, well, I can't help it, it doesn't matter. You can help it. You can trust in the Lord. You can say, Lord, I need you to be with me through this, and he will be with you through it. He's not here to punish you. He's here to help you. That's why he saved you. A person that is saved is his son. Unless a father is perverse, he's not going to do something contrary to his son. He's going to help him and to nurture him and to bring him up in the right way. Okay? The lesson of Pharaoh is the lesson for all of us in our own lives. Life application. In the end... Calling on Jesus is a choice of the free will, despite what Reformed theology says. When the choice is made, he seals us with his spirit. He sets us on a new and wonderful course. He gives us now the ability to overcome the things that we could not overcome before. Doesn't mean that we're going to do it, but he gives us the ability to do it because we can handle Romans 7. Go back and read it again. Who will free me from this body of death? Thank God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay? So, the course will last for eternity in his presence, such as the grace and mercy of God. Okay? 918. Therefore, God has mercy on whom? Therefore. What's it there for? What's it there for? we got to find out, don't we? Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Pardon. Wants pardon. Okay. Does that mean actively or passively? The answer is yeah. passively. That's right. He hardens whom ye will harden. People take that and they say, well, see, there it is right there in the book of Romans. He is hardening somebody's heart. You have to go back and you have to study the account which Paul is citing. Because if you don't study that account, you're going to just assume whatever you're reading is correct or whatever the pastor says is correct. God hardened his heart by his own sovereign choice. Well, he did do that, but he did it passively, not actively. It was a passive hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yes. 
Can that be uh, considered the difference between uh, what God causes what he allows? Absolutely. Both he, he, he causes and he allows. He caused Pharaoh to be born at this point in history. He caused Pharaoh to develop into this size of a person. Everything he did that is the structure of Pharaoh, he caused. But then he allows Pharaoh to use those things in his own way. And he also affected him externally, don't get me wrong, he affected Pharaoh knowing that Pharaoh was made up in this way. Knowing that he, you know, me, she knows, mom knows, I'm the most excitable person you will ever meet on the planet. I mean, I get really tense very quickly. If something doesn't go right, I don't sleep all night long, okay? I stress over things because I don't like conflict. I don't like trouble with other people. And when it comes, it, it robs me of my joy. Okay, and I'm like this. I, she knows that. My mom knows. I don't know if anybody else on the planet knows that, but they know without a doubt that I'm very, very high strung. And that is my makeup. I am the one that has to choose, right, what you were saying. Cause, is it active? Is it, is it allowed? I am the one that allows myself to get that way. I can say I need to step back from this. And, I, you know, we all have our own choices to make. And I have to be careful with my makeup in that respect. But at the same time, my dad said something before he went on a cruise. I don't understand them. They're always going somewhere. I, I love staying at home. I love being right in my little thing and then coming here on Sunday and that's it. I love it and mission work. But um, uh, he uh, said this week, he said, oh, if everybody had your, your energy, we'd all be millionaires in the family. Well, that's not true because I'm not a millionaire, but... Anyway, the point was made. I appreciated him saying that because I have this energy and I can either use it positively or I can use it negatively, right? And that is going to what you're saying right there, allowing. God made me the way I am. Now I have the choice to, and that's why I stay home a lot, is because I know that if I'm home and I've got the word in front of me and I've got Bible Gateway open and I've got Bible Hub open and I've got the questions that are coming in by email, I can adapt my time to taking care of things that are productive. If I don't have that, I could be doing anything. And so this is what I find in my life is the most productive, is just staying there focused on the word all day long. And then even when I'm out taking out the, oh, I got a tip this morning, didn't I? She laughed. I'm out there taking out the garbage. It's really cold this morning. And somebody came up to me and handed me a dollar. Here, this is for you. I said, no, I'm working for Peggy. He says, oh, it's okay. He thinks I'm a bum picking up garbage in the uh, parking lot. Happens all the time. So first thing I do when I get home, I take the dollar out of my pocket and I say, tips, tips. That's, see, we got this little joke between us. Where, so she's, she's a dollar richer because here's this hippie out there with no shoes on, gross clothes, picking up garbage at 7-Eleven and taking out their garbage. And uh, the guy was so embarrassed when I told him I'm working for Peggy. He said, it's okay, please. Uh, and, uh, anyway, there you go. Uh, but uh, that's when I'm out there doing that, I try to stay focused on the Lord, even when I'm not at home with the Bible in front of me. Because if not, what's that? Hey, I did. Not that guy, but another guy. He was at uh, 7-Eleven yesterday, and he got out of his car, and his knees were hurting really bad. And uh, he, uh, I, I said uh, something to him, and he went in. And then he came out, and he, he uh, oh, he said, do you need a pair of shoes? And I said, <laughs> I said no. I said, uh, I, I just don't wear them. I was raised out here, and I don't like shoes. And he said, and then just so he wouldn't think I was a bomb, I said, I'm actually a preacher, you know. And he said, what? And I said, yeah, I preach over to church in Gulfgate. And he says, well, I've been looking for a church. Well, here's the address. Come if you want. So maybe if we see somebody with bad knees come in on Sunday, then we'll know that he 
wanted to really a church. Was, yeah, with a pair of shoes for the pastor. Had a good heart. What? He had a good heart. He, yeah, he was a nice guy. Yes. And afterward, we talked for a little while. But anyway, um, you never know who you're going to meet in life. And if you're not focusing on the Lord, you're bound to say something you shouldn't say to somebody. So you need to sing that song. My father is rich as his houses. <laughs> oh, that's right. I'll have to learn the words to it before I sing it. But okay, all right. We got to get in. Said you'd be a millionaire. You know. Well, someday I will be. I'll be in a mansion of my own. I can't wait. But yeah, right now it's uh, well. We got a nice place, Grandpa. Seventy years. I forgot to announce that we have now been on Siesta Key for seventy years. Nineteen forty-eight. My grandpa moved onto the island. Two hundred people out there. Two hundred people. One bridge. And now look at it. But you know what? We live in. I, I I will tell people we live in a champagne piece of property with a beer house on it because we got this ancient old house from the nineteen forty-eight, the year that uh, they moved on the island. That house was built and. Um, uh, yeah, so anyway, we're blessed in many ways. I can't complain about life at all. But, um, okay, um, yeah, God's sovereignty. Uh, some believe it means that God actively... I'm going to just start with the commentary again because we got time. This verse is as clear of a statement as one can find concerning God's sovereignty. However, even in this verse, debate arises as to what it means. I said that some and actively saves others. This is known as, and we went through it with the ducks, which somebody emailed me and she loved the duck example. This week, uh, a friend of mine says, oh, I guess you just watched it finally this week. And she said, oh, thank you. It cleared up so many things. But um, this is known as double deep predestination, superlapsinarianism, above the fall Ianism or the doctrine of, okay? So God before he did anything, he decided, I'm going to create humanity, and I'm going to create some for condemnation, and I'm going to create some for salvation. And they have no choice in the matter. That is uh, what double predestination means. Then you get, pre um, what do you call it? The next one down is what the Calvinists would preach, which is um, where God uh, creates some for salvation and the others he passes by. He doesn't actively condemn them to hell. He just lets them go to hell. Okay, yes. How can you have a loving God that would create you can't. You can't. souls no. to, to be the fires of you, hell? You can't. How can you it, it's not possible. And no. so it is wrong. And that's the way we went through the ducks is because God doesn't work that way. It is faulty thinking. Think but, so. yes. Not only that, the Bible specifically says that the that hell was made for statement is that's right it wasn't made for man it was made for us. man chooses to go there or man doesn't get the chance mm -hmm. to go to heaven because nobody went over to Papua New Guinea and told tell about Jesus right okay so that's why we support missionaries is because yeah. we believe that it's an important right. thing for people to be able to go to heaven okay so absolutely very good points double predestination in essence and I'll read it God created some to be condemned and he created some to be saved Apart from this truly unbiblical concept of double predestination, there are several other opinions about what actually occurs concerning God's election of people. This is all discussed in detail in Romans 8.29. If you didn't watch that, it's an hour and a half long of talking about ducks. You will understand the four different views, okay? Very clearly laid out. You don't have to accept my view okay what i hold to but at least you will know what the four major views say there are lots of lesser views but those four major views give you a broad example of what predestination means okay just so you know i'm correct and they're not but uh, you, that's your choice to decide that i say that because i wouldn't teach something that i didn't believe was correct right you know well all the time people ask you to say well you shouldn't say this and you shouldn't say that and this is me 
I, I believe what I believe. I've woven together the pages of scripture the way that I believe that they are to be handled, okay? I wouldn't intentionally weave something incorrect into there, okay? And the guy that believes differently than R.C. Sproul, he believes differently than I do, he wouldn't be teaching it unless he really believed it. There is a conflict between his belief and my belief, and only one can be right or both are wrong, but not both cannot be right. And he is honest in his teaching, or was, he's dead now, and I am honest in my teaching. But which one is correct? Okay, that's why I say I am correct because I believe I am. I wouldn't hold to my view if I believed his view. I wouldn't purposely teach it wrong. A perverse person might because it's more profitable, but that's not the point of teaching. The point of teaching is to say, this is what I believe here. Now you go check it out. Okay, so um, uh, we know from James 1, 13 and 14, that God is not the one who leads others into committing evil. Those verses state, let no one say he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. As I said, a person with, the, the, the issue is irrelevant how somebody became a homosexual. homosexual. It is irrelevant. He may have been born with a predisposition. He may have had it trained into him at a very young age. He may have been rejected by a girl when he was 18. It doesn't matter. It is his choice. As it says in James, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The only thing that matters is not doing what the Lord says, do not do. Or when the Lord says, I want you to do this thing, that you do it. That is what matters. This is the word that God gave us. He is the creator, and we are beholden to this word, whether we like it or not. Anything else is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is he spoke, and this is our marching orders. So to try to justify sin, like violating 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, gets nobody anywhere. It will not serve any purpose in the end. The person that violates that will be judged for violating it, and they will get no rewards in the process. But they will try to find other verses that they seem to justify what they're doing. It doesn't matter. The Lord said you are not to do this. E-O-S, as I always put at the end of a post when I'm angry at somebody. End of story. I'm not going on, right? So um, so how can Romans 9.18 be squared with this? What I just went through. How can it be? The answer is that hardens is being tied to the preceding verse about Pharaoh. To harden is not the exertion of a positive influence, such as adding hardener to resin to make it a solid. Another good example would be the heart itself, but in a physical, not a spiritual way. We could say that God literally and actively hardened our heart, calcifying it and clogging up our arteries. Or we could say that God passively hardens our hearts by allowing us to eat the wrong foods and live a lethargic and couch potato type of existence. The end result is going to be the same. Either God did it actively or he did it passively by allowing us to eat garbage food, right? But we still end up with the hard heart, okay? Which is it? The second example is equivalent to what God did in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God molded us as individuals, giving us predispositions to certain things as he saw fit. However, those predispositions don't in any way negate our responsibility as individuals. 
We may be predisposed to eating foods that taste good, but which are not healthy. I'm guilty. I eat more chocolate in a day than all of you together will eat in a month. She'll tell you that, okay? So you're a vegetarian. I, I, I'm a vet. Well, no, I eat a lot of meat too. I really love to eat meat. But you okay. Like that, right. Yeah, no, but I, no, I just I'm not a healthy eater. That's my fault. If I die of, you know, hardened arteries or whatever, it's because I did it to myself, right? Nobody forced me to eat the things that I like. I could eat the good food that she prepares every night. She she makes like a 15 course meal every single night of my life. And what is the first thing I go to on the table every night? I go to no I go to the bread she won't serve me chocolate I and I will eat the entire thing of bread there and the last piece is there and I'll say here this one is yours and she knows I want it she'll say that's okay I don't want it and I'll put butter on it and eat it because and I give one little piece to all my dogs I got eight dogs so there's a half of a piece of bread but I eat it all and then I'm not hungry for anything else because I love bread that is my thing if bread was not good for me then it would have been my problem eating bread right and the Lord can't say, well, you know, I made you do it. yeah, I made you do it. I may have the predisposition, but I'm the one that chose to do it. It just happens that bread is very good for you, and so it doesn't matter. But the chocolate afterward and the chocolate before isn't. And the butter. And the butter. Oh, I love butter. Oh, boy. Yeah. Anyway. Um, the what? Yeah. Chocolate on bread is really good. Yeah. Just heat it up and pour it on. Um, so um, uh, we may be predisposed. predisposed let me say that one more. predisposed thank you to idleness because of our genetic makeup too but ultimately we are responsible to get up live right and eat a healthy diet if we don't make money because we sit at home all day whose fault is that the Bible tells us that the rafters sag because of a lack of attention there's a point where you have to get up and you have to fix the rafters now I may have misquoted that and I'm sorry but uh, uh, that's basically what it says. It tells you that we are to not be idle. Look to the ant, oh sluggard, right? The ant is an industrious thing. Look at the locust. It travels in, in uh, uh, bands or yeah, whatever, but it doesn't have a king. They all just work together to an end goal. We have choices to make as human beings. Pharaoh was left to make his own decisions after he was molded and shaped into the time and the moment when the decision would be made. The choice was still his, and by making his choices, his heart was hardened. We too have our hearts hardened as we reject God's intent for us. Life application. Are you predisposed to a certain type of sin? Maybe drunkenness, homosexuality, or some other sin? If so, God has already shown you that these types of behaviors are wrong. He does not force you to do these things. Rather, they are volitional acts of the will. Just because one has a predisposition to a particular sin does not mean that they must act on it. That is the fallacy of what's going on in the world today. They try to justify sin all over the world in schools and in hospitals and in fire stations because a person has a predisposition to something irrelevant completely irrelevant however yeah in today's world we are taught that acting on impulses is okay it is not and we will be held accountable for our actions in judgment we will have no right to question the decision that God renders zero he made the decision we must abide by it we got time for one more verse go ahead 19 one of you will say to me then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? 
Yep, and this is very close to this one. It says, why does he find fault? But almost the same thing. In the manner of anyone who wants to live their life in an unholy and self-centered way, Paul now proposes a question that would be fitting for such a soul. Okay, Paul, if everything you have said is true this far, then why does God still find fault in me? Why? Tell me that. If God works in a sovereign manner apart from my decisions, then how can what I do be found as wrong? That is the logical argument that the LGBT people are using today. How can it be wrong? Because I was created this way. Whether they were or not doesn't matter, okay? So, his will is going to come about, and if my actions only lead to the fulfillment of his will, then I'm actually helping his plan come about. I'm not resisting him at all. You see how perverse people can get? They can turn around something that is explicit and wrong, and they can say it's good, and I'm actually fulfilling God's will by doing this, which is what the pastors that preach this type of thing in the pulpit actually say. We're fulfilling God's will. God is loving, and he wants us to love one another, and so we must accept these people that are doing these perverse things. We're fulfilling God's will by doing that. They twist what God has said. They twist the intent of the human I want to say animal, whatever we are, the human person. They twist it, and they make a mockery of it in the presence of God. This is actually a common sentiment which is proposed around the world every day by folks who revel living in sin. The first problem with such a thought is that, as I said in the last verse, God is God. God is God, right? He's not somebody else. What we do doesn't change the fact that God is God. The same is true with the law. Example, the law says that horse thieves are to be killed, right? They're to be hung. Somebody steals Johnny's horses and he chases them and kills them. The law judges Johnny as a murderer and sentence, sentences Johnny to death. Johnny says, I was merely fulfilling the law. How can the law find fault in me? Right? You see the logic which people would use in that? Sure. The problem is with his logic. It's that the law requires a judge and a jury to sentence and convict horse thieves, not Johnny. Johnny has taken the law into his own hands and has worked apart from the law to bring about justice. He has violated God's will, or the law of the land in this case, in the process. Johnny has forfeited his right to ask the very questions that I gave you a moment ago that Paul is proposing to us now. He's forfeited his right in that. What we do may in fact be a part of God's plan, just as killing that horse thief is a part of the law's plan, but it's not his right to take that action, just as Pharaoh's actions were. But Pharaoh did not heed the word of the Creator in the execution of what he did. See Exodus 5.2 for one of many examples. Let me just read you that, and then we'll go on. Exodus 5, verse 2, Deuteronomy. Ah, it's after. Yeah, it's not before, Charlie. Um, Exodus 5, verse 2, 16, 12. We're getting there really quickly. 7. Okay, 5, verse 2. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. Well, you've got a choice there, Pharaoh. You've got gods all over the place. You've got them all over the place, and we say that this is the true God. Now you are going to have to see the difference, okay? He made the choice. He wasn't forced on him. 
the law said this, the Lord is the lawmaker, and he said this, and he's not going to go with it. He's going to be Johnny and do things his own way, right? So, he worked in a way contrary to the law, the word of the Lord, even though the end came out as God determined. God has no difficulty in securing his end, and he is doing it with the free will of man. His will is being affected through our free will, whether we like that or not. When a person says, I wasn't resisting his will, he is proposing an assumption that God's plans have somehow negated his own choices. An assumption that is both arrogant and one that attributes evil intent to God while looking for an acquittal of their own wrong actions, which is exactly what the left in our nation and all around the world do every single day. They impute evil to God by the words that they speak and the actions that they take. It is an assumption, one, that cannot be proved, and two, would indicate any crime or moral perversion must also be condoned. And that is exactly where we're heading in the world today. Exactly. I got to tell you, somebody sent me, my friend Ben over in uh, Australia sent me uh, a, a one minute or one and a half minute long clip of, of Monty Python. And remember John Cleese and Eric Idle and all these guys, and they're sitting out there and there's one girl with them. And they started talking about, you know, to one another. And wait, we got something coming in. Hang on just a second here. Does anybody have a $5 bill really quickly? I'll get you one later. How you doing? If anybody has one. How you doing there? Just put it right up on that chair right here. If anybody has it, don't leave. Uh, somebody's got it right here. I'll get that back to you, okay? I'm sorry. I wasn't thinking. This was said to be for Jim, actually. Here, Jim. That's Jim. My contribution, I don't know. Just give it Thank you. No, I, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, you got something from this lady right behind you here. You make sure that you let me give you that back. I, yes. yes. As a long hike in the cold. I, I should have planned this, and I wasn't thinking. What's that? Ah. Uh, ah. Uh. Okay, there we go. We've got a scribble. Thank you. Have a wonderful night now. Okay, that was the easiest five bucks he's made all day. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's got, he walked from two doors down. So, okay, this was, just so everybody knows before we close, this was provided by somebody anonymous online that attends uh, from, well, I can give the state with, probably without, because there's a lot of people out there in California that bought this for us tonight. So when we There, there when is we good say, in California. There is good in California, <laughs> all right? And uh, it, it never rains in California, too. Did you know I that? I heard that. So yeah. Um, so just so you know, um, when we turn the camera around today and everybody says goodbye, we want to make a special wink at the person that gave us, actually the couple that gave us the uh, dinner tonight, okay? So. Um, under the sycamore tree. The sycamore tree, what? Any good thing coming out of any? Yeah, that's right. Any good thing. Exactly. Okay. So um, as I was saying, we have people justifying their sin, imputing it to God, saying, I'm only fulfilling God's word. And they're twisting the word of the Lord in order to come to the conclusions that they have come to. All right. When we hold up our puny little fist and shake it towards God, such an action is done in defiance of our creator, willingly and with our own evil intent. It is not in accord with his will, it is against his will. And we are showing an obstinate stiff neck, just as Israel did, but we're doing it willingly after the cross, not before. We are much more culpable for the actions we take in the church today than Israel ever was. To whom much has been given? From the much will be required. That much is required, that's absolutely right. We have been given so much more than Israel. Israel saw the Red Sea parted. They walked through the Red Sea. They saw the pillar by day and the fire by night, right? 
They saw the manna for 40 years. They, their eyes behold, beheld the glory of the Lord above Mount Sinai. They received the law. Everything that they saw was absolutely glorious, and yet it is nothing compared to the fact that we have the testimony that Jesus Christ stepped into the stream of human existence and did what he did in fulfillment of the law. We're going to go through the last of the feasts of the Lord, Tabernacles, this Sunday. It's fulfilled in Christ. I have to tell you, we have the proof that what they saw with their own eyes, we can live by faith because we have the surety of it. All right. What is in those verses there, I hope everybody gets what I'm telling them on Sunday because it is completely, completely different than anything that I thought when I started that sermon. I had a presupposition about what Tabernacles in Leviticus 23 was going to tell us, and it is completely different, completely different. It is marvelous, and it is all fulfilled in Christ. We have much, much more responsibility to obeying the words Lord today than Israel ever did because we have the fulfillment of what they saw in Jesus Christ 100% when we hold up I said that there um, uh, where am I God didn't create us to blasphemy his name but when we do it was known to him before the world was created that we would do so he knew it doesn't mean that just because he knew that we did and even if he made us with a predisposition to being hyper and blurting out something stupid that we shouldn't blurt out that we're still culpable for doing that thing we will not be excused by manipulating words to defend ourselves in the end we will only be seen as the fools that we are and I'm not talking about Christians here in this church. I'm not accusing anybody. I'm simply saying that this is how the world operates, and we take this word and we twist it, all right? Not the people here. I'm just saying in general, talking about the general state of the world around us. This is what people do, and there will be no excuse for that. And if we do that as Christians, how much worse is it? Because we know that we shouldn't be doing these things, and we've been studying his word, and yet we still twist? Terrible place to be in. Life application, and we are done. Free will has been granted to man. How much better to use it to bring glory to God than to bring shame upon ourselves? Call on Jesus, be restored to God, and be cleansed of the poor free will choices that you have made in the past. Speaking to myself, I'm looking in the mirror right now, right? That's what we need to do. And then we need to do, as I said, just give God the glory. In everything we do, it's so hard to do. It is so hard to do, and yet that is what we have been asked to do, right? I will say something before we close. We have um, uh, verse 920. Um, I was thinking about this today, is that, uh, that one of the most important times of my week, every single week, I love to type sermons on Monday. It, it wears me out, but I love it. I love to give sermons on Sunday. I love to come here on Thursday night and give the Bible class and all of the other things I do throughout the week. But one of the most important things that I do every single week, and I appreciate it more when I get away from there and I think about how wonderful it was is to Saturday morning to go out to the projects and then afterward to sit at lunch with about four or five other people that I love to go to the projects with and to share in our experiences of the week to talk about the Lord, to pray with the, the uh, girls that serve us. We have two girls that we only use them because we know they're Christians and they will pray with us. And wow, one of them can really pray. But uh, uh, One of them joined us too. One of, both of them joined us this week at different times. I'm but, talking about here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them actually came here one time. But um, uh, 
that uh, that is the kind of thing that if you take the time to fellowship with believers, if you take the time to concentrate on God in what you were doing first in the projects, and the projects is whatever you're doing. You could be at the store, whatever, and you were telling people about Jesus. And then you take the time to fellowship with other believers and process what you've done together. I'm telling you, there is nothing, I don't know if you feel that way, and if you do, Tom, but that, I, that is, to me, the best part of my week, is absolutely to be able to sit down, and now, Laura, you're coming once in a while, all right? We hope you keep coming. If you don't, that's your choice. We never ask people to come out. You what? She's been I know, I know. I, well, don't worry about that. I've missed plenty myself, but I'm saying that it is a real treat to be able to fellowship with Christians like that and to be able to talk about the things that you have done and to just give God the glory in the process. The ultimate end of everything that we should do, and that's what I was thinking about this morning, is to give God the glory. And when we do that with other Christians as a group, he must just really enjoy that. It must bless him. So make sure that you do that as you pursue him throughout the week. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's have some pizza. Heavenly Father, thank you for this pizza. How wonderful it is that somebody is so good to uh, share a little bit of their life with us, even though they're so far away. And we thank you for their generosity and their kindness. And uh, we have other people in Australia that have given us enough money to do this again as well, and we'll do that soon. We thank you for the chance to fellowship with people around the world that are watching and uh, sharing in this with us. And we ask that you would just bless each person here and online and those that watch on YouTube later, mm -hmm. that you'll tend to them, meet their needs, and just help them to come to a fuller understanding of who you are, of how precious your word is, and the glory that you reveal to us and how we should share in that by returning to you praise and honor and thanks. Help us in this, Lord. Help us to be obedient to your word, to cherish you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to get out and tell others about it as well. And I know that with this, you will be pleased. We all know this. So help us in this, and we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let me back this baby up, and uh, we'll just, uh, let's see here. That's, uh, what am I doing? I'm not wearing glasses, so I can't see which button to put. There it is. Okay. Okay, here we go. Thank you very much for the pizza, and have a nice night, everybody. Have a great week, and we hope to see you Sunday. Love you. Yeah, we can't have pizza without Nicole. Can't do it. I know it looks wonderful. And it stayed curly. You don't do that, do you? It's just natural. It, it looks wonderful. I'm telling you, it looks. Yeah. I wonder what my hair would look like if I ever had it.